0: This is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open-source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics, open-source software, or short, Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode.
1: This podcast is brought to you by your friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash chaos.
0: We have an interesting episode today about diversity and inclusion as one of the themes. And so we're going to do our introductions a little bit different today because we want to acknowledge the biases and backgrounds that we bring to the table. On the podcast today are Venia Logan.
1: Hello, my name is Venia, and in the interest of today's diversity podcast, I am also an LGBTQ individual, specifically a trans and pan woman.
0: Don Marty.
2: Hello, I am uh, Don Marty, and my pronouns are uh, he, him, and his, and I am a cis man, and I am white from a European-American background, and I'm a U.S. citizen and native speaker of the English language.
0: And dear link myself, I am originally from Germany. Cis man. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm gay and immigrated to the United States about seven, eight years ago. And I work at Biturgiar. I also grew up in a family that was very privileged. I, I must acknowledge that because we were able to travel and I had a lot of options and opportunities growing up. With that, We are super excited to have Emma Irvin on today. And Emma, I know I've known you for several years now. And we first met, I think, at the Open Source Summit North America in Los Angeles in 2017, when you were on the big stage to talk about your work at Mozilla. Yeah, tell us a little bit about where you're from and... What do you do?
3: Thanks, Georg. Hi, everyone. It's really great to be here just around my identity, especially the podcast. I think that's really great. Everyone's describing their privilege and, and their experiences. I'm a just white woman from Canada. So I, I'm a native English speaker, and I'm also a mother of three girls. I'm a widow, and I work in tech at Mozilla. I also have had privilege, especially to be working in technology, I think is definitely one of those I would count in that category. And yeah, we met at the Open Source Summit. That was great.
0: (laughs) Yeah, at the time, I think you were talking about the survey you did for Mozilla about inclusion. And then uh, shortly after we started working together in chaos, could you describe what that journey was like from your perspective?
3: Yeah. So back in, I forget the year, I, was it 2017? Maybe 2018, I was at the Open Source Summit. and Yeah, we were presenting a, a, some work that we had done at Mozilla, specifically research into what do we mean when we talk about diversity and inclusion in the context of open source, right? Like A lot of the conversations and data and storytelling around diversity in tech is primarily focused on, you know, organization employment. At Mozilla, we looked around and couldn't find anything really meaningful that we could build on. So we we spent a lot of time doing research. We talked to at least 90 people in our community who identified as being underrepresented in some way. We ran surveys both internally and externally in open source with over 240 projects represented in, in those surveys. And we were at the Open Source Summit to talk about what we learned from that. And our, what the recommendations coming out of that were. So we we had some early not only insights, but here's some areas of work that we should do. And I was really excited to learn about chaos at the same event because the one thing that I knew, or like felt, is that you know working in silos, like we have all this information, we have these insights, but that's not something that we can build on our own, nor should we, right? Well, that was one of our findings actually that a lot of projects are working on diversity in silos, which is contrary to the you know the whole ethos of open source that we need to work on things together and build on each other's work and not just continually. Uh, And I felt like chaos at the time was that opportunity to, you know, it seemed like this opportunity where projects were already starting to talk about metrics in community health. And I felt like that was something that Mozilla could bring and our research could bring to work with other projects at chaos on diversity, like metrics. As cold as that sounds, (laughs) it was really a great opportunity. And so that's where our journey started.
0: And I I know that the work you have done has really informed our work in the chaos project and especially in the diversity inclusion working group where the focus areas we have right now came directly from the research you did because you identified these are the problem areas. And so I know we spent a lot of time and effort identifying what are the questions and metrics in these problem areas. And yeah, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for everything that you've brought to the Chaos Project at this point.
3: My pleasure. I mean, one of the the cool things was that, you know, as as those metrics, we started to establish those early like questions and metrics, having other researchers, people working in data who being studying in some way, being able to validate those or tweak them. It's like, yes, but, or yes, and was really powerful in the beginning and I think really accelerated and made that, took the work that we had built, but made it better. And I think that's still happening. Thank you.
0: (laughs) So I know we have come a a long way in the diversity inclusion work. I'll just talk about this for a second longer. And we have some metrics in the different focus areas that, that are starting to get some traction. I know we have the, Chaos diversity inclusion badging project right now, where we are thinking about ways to actually implement some of the metrics because there's a hurdle to for projects or communities to adopt these diversity inclusion metrics. So yeah, those are some of the things that we are working on right now. And I know, Emma, you also have this recommendation or suggestion to make like a toolbox or I don't know what you called it.
3: I'm interested in the badging because I think it's making our metrics accessible. It's taking the question that people might have about how do I make my project more inclusive and how do these like how do I actually use these metrics or you know what what should I apply them to and creating like a really simple way that that recognizes success. So in the the badging project it might be that someone has a code of conduct that it's enforceable that they have an inclusive leadership structure and they'll have the badging process, I think, will be a recognition of that. And that is also a teaching tool, right? So the fact that a project might have a badge and somebody goes to their project, and looks like, oh, wow, like, this is something someone else has done. What, how do they do that, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So it's both a recognition and a teaching tool. And so I'm super excited to see how that comes out. And I also think that Mozilla's open source support program is helping, it's at least given some part of a grant to that. So I'm, I'm proud that we're continuing to help with that. As far as the toolkit, Georg, I think it's the same thing. It's like, what are the really simplest things that people can do? And a toolkit just might be more of like a list of components where here's an easy way to understand how well your I'll use leadership again, because I'll talk about it later. Structures are set up. Three checkboxes. You know, it takes between one hour to three hours. There's sort of a, an expectation. Like people don't always understand when they're going into it, like how long something will take. And a series of descriptions and maybe people you can reach out to that have done the same task. So it's sort of a really simplifying. I think that's some of the next most important goals in this work. That's really amazing.
1: And I kind of want to go back to the badging real quick because it's kind of blowing my mind a little bit. Because a lot of people tend to use badging when it comes to analytics and gamification to kind of bring into virtual communities this idea of identity negotiation and further identity tourism that allows you to start somewhere make an identity slightly more concrete and more concrete and as you become a veteran in a community people have come to know you in a certain way so i'm curious to know what badges are available what level of degree are people going to be able to use them in order to negotiate their own identities in an online space and how exactly are they going
3: to receive said badges? I don't know if either Dawn or Georg have more details about the broader goals of the badging system. The thing that I know is that it's more project-based at this point. It's like, is this project doing a good job? And here's the criteria that we've set out to measure that. And it's, I think there's also a, a similar badging program for security, uh, CII badge or something like that. And one of the first flags that I had definitely was like, this can't be gamified, right? We can't, we need to make sure that this actually represents the project's status as being inclusive and caring about that because leadership changes, you know, there's lots of, of different um, aspects and it can't just be about data. And so I know, I think that the the group is also working on sort of a, a review panel of people that will validate what the data says. So first of all, that's a key component. And then that it's also renewed every year. So it's not just something you you're, oh, you're inclusive, congratulations. And you're inclusive for life sort of thing. It's it's a continual renewal as much as recognition. And hopefully that around the identity of a project, which is totally different, that they become, you know, they start to teach others what that looks like. That's what I know so far.
1: Yeah. And from my perspective in the LGBTQ community, there's a safe zone training and closet friendly status. And they're just small little things that you can have on the doors to your entryways or on your website for online support groups that basically say, we've gone through a certain standard of certification. So we are bronze level closet friendly now. So you can trust
3: us in that regard. Is that kind of similar? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's why it's really important. And I think that Matt and Sean, I think are primarily working on this in the chaos project, have really thought about the responsibility of that badging system to make sure that those signals are there, that they're real, and that no one can in- inadvertently, you know, trust something <laughs> and that not be trustworthy. So I think that there's, this badging program has thought about a lot of those things, and I'm, I'm kind of excited to see how it... But yeah, definitely, as you describe, I think that's definitely the goal.
2: Yeah, so, so from I'm the on- point of view of the project maintainer, I think there might be some doubts uh, as to whether you want to be aware of or responsible for knowing some potentially sensitive identity information about your participants. And so does the badging help address concerns by project maintainers that they can be inclusive without taking on personal data uh, stewardship responsibilities?
3: So I think, again, I'm just basing (laughs) what I think I don't, I don't know the level of thought that, gone specifically into the badging project around this, but I think that initially the types of criteria will not involve having people's data, uh, right, or their personal information. It'd be more about the things that research has taught us, like through our our metrics, we know. we know some basic things about communication channels and about how issues are opened and how we respond to people and that don't require you knowing anything about anyone else that we can implement. Something that is being on the radar for chaos around me and I don't know how far we are along with this, is the ethics around data. So I don't think that's specifically gonna be in the badging program, but you know, we have all these different metrics and we can collect demographic information. There's first of all, there's legal, <laughs> a lot of legal things around what you should and should not do. But I also think the ethical piece is like, should we be asking this? We're asking people's, you know, gender identity or their age, or you know, in some places or a location in the match of Gender identity and location can be really dangerous for some people. If someone has access to that, yeah, yeah, we need to like have a set of. I'll use the word rules around where those should ever be used. So I think the metrics are more about measuring inclusion than diversity. If that makes sense, like taking what we know about what people have already told us, make them feel safe, make them feel inclu- included, or the reverse, make them feel not safe or not included, and applying the metrics for those to the project versus asking people about themselves. We can do that separately, but it should be done really responsibly. And I definitely wouldn't I would hope that a DNI badging program would be more about the identity of the project like the attributes of a project than the, the people. That if that makes yeah.
2: sense. And a newer or smaller project isn't going to have the time or infrastructure to know about uh, sensitive personal facts about their participants. So they're going to they're going to need to be able to make progress on inclusion before they get to the level of being able to do data stewardship.
3: 100%.
0: So if anyone of our listeners would like to learn more about the batting project, Matt Snell is leading the efforts currently, and he just had a talk at the Open Source Summit North America where he talked about everything that they're doing. And I'll try to hunt down A link to the recording and put them in the show notes so that you can get up to speed on how that project is going. Yeah. And
1: the open source summit of North America was very, very heavy with diversity topics. So I definitely recommend giving other areas a good look too.
0: Emma, I I know you have been in this space for a long time. What is like the number one mistake that people make? when they approach community health metrics?
3: Well, I think the number one problem is that people think about data as being the solution. And I, I think that having lots of data sources and dashboards sounds really attractive to being able to solve community health problems or inclusion problems. And I think that's kind of the number one problem is thinking about systems as being the solution when really... Uh, it's about making sure you have the right question in the beginning. And I don't think you need lots of dashboards or lots of data to begin answering really good questions. And especially, I think that might be true when people start asking questions about diversity because that's about like counting people. And, and data can provide that somewhat. When understanding experiences, like understanding specifically someone's experience when they pick up a good first bug you know, really digging into that is going to be provide much more insight than counting how many people took a first bug. Yeah. So start with good questions and then build
1: up to your, your dashboards. And I am always an advocate of the QIA process going from what's your question. The information is in the middle. What answer are you truly honestly expecting? What's the end goal there? In filling out that question and that answer will give you the understandable KPIs and information and stuff like that to answer those good questions. The spot where I see people having a lot of issues, I absolutely
3: agree with you, is coming up with those good questions. How do you recommend people go about that? Oh, well, coming up with the really good questions. So I think that the chaos metrics are a great place to look already some of the questions are already there and ready to go. And also I'll just say like testing them and contributing back what you learned about using those questions is also, I think valuable for the Canvas project to build them forward. So one of the ways that I have worked with designing questions for community health analytics is really first having a conversation with a project team. So the engineers working with community and trying to understand what their actual challenges are in the project. So is it that, and those might be goals, like KPIs, where they might be expressed as challenges. Like, for example, you know, I don't need more contributors or more first bugs. I need more people to triage pull requests and to, like, test issues, right? And so that's, that sort of conversation, conversationally, those, that can bring out those problems. And then we can say, okay, so how healthy or how well are we engaging new leaders, right? Those are leadership tasks, like reviewing PRs and tasks. So that's, that's the beginning of a good question, right? So if this is something that we need, how well are we engaging and lifting up new leaders in the project? And also from the perspective of having, you know, more contributors and you can handle the new bugs, well, how well are we, you know, enabling more senior contributors to support them? So it's not an engineering task to like help people like find their, do their first build or whatever. So, and those are just, those are just project questions at some point. And then you can layer on top, right? And how many of those leaders that we are bringing to the project or that we're raising up are non-male or non-man, but also like people of color or non-native English speakers. And so it's one question, but I guess what I'm realizing as I'm answering it, that there's several layers to that, but tying it to a project problem that, and you know, that that project's already trying to accomplish is more likely to result in the overall success of those types of things. And, and then if you're actually talking about data and dashboards, well, you know, I think you could start doing a query of, you know, if you have tags, for example, in your GitHub repository for P1, P2, P3, and, and, and pull requests and tasks, you can start to say, well, this is how many people are currently non-staff or non-core contributors who are reviewing pull requests or testing the issues reported in tasks or I guess issues is I should be using the word issue, not task. And then that's your baseline. And then how many of those people appear, you know, you can always tell from profiles, but you know, appear to be non-native. You can start to establish your baseline. And then that's when you start adding your interventions. Well, what do we need to do to change that? Who do we need to talk to? And then you re-query again, which is, I think the other problem is that that people do one-time measurements and go, Oh, you know, this is, this is how it is. <laughs> so, And then reaffirming like that you've made progress over time. So I don't know if that answers, but it's a bit of a journey to get those questions. And just looking at data is not going to get you there.
1: Right. Figuring out what questions will lead to lead metrics that you can compare week over week, month over month, year over year yeah. to determine, okay, did we get better? Did something change here? And mm-hmm. eventually start to build enough of a view of your community that you can start seeing those holes and questions pop up that you can't answer.
3: Yeah, but I do think they should be continually tied to what the project is trying to accomplish because goodwill, I find like, it's really easy to get people to say they care about community health. It's really easy to get them to say they care about diversity and inclusion. I almost never run into anyone that says, we don't need more diversity or, you know, no one will actually say that, but the intention, like making that actionable, I find is more likely to be successful when it's not just about that when it's tied to project goals and that might might sound a little bit you know we should just care we should just try and do those things but i just find that operationally if you tie it to things people are doing and care about in the project it's more likely to have long term commitments and success if
1: that makes sense yeah absolutely and i think i kind of want to Kind of switch gears and zero in a little bit about this topic because you mentioned something about Mozilla having an issue where you were trying to take care of these diversity issues in silo. And in my experience, I've noticed that there are some times in community management where not broadening a conversation can kill it, but there are also times when diversity is fostered by being exclusive. This concept of safe spaces, exclusivity can breed inclusivity, where if you just say this conversation is about this, let's start a place for you over here. So can you talk a little bit about where the silo concept meets the exclusivity concept and
3: how that worked? I think when I say silos, I more mean the work of data and metrics for inclusion. So for me at Mozilla to have you know started building those in our spaces and just with our projects would have taken a lot longer and you know the silo is also like you know the experiences of of the people doing the work and the the data that they have and the research they've done so I think for me the silo was about the work of Matrix. Now, I totally agree. And one of the recommendations that actually came out of my 2017 research was to foster what we call identity communities. So for example, we had a, a small group of people who were identified as women who had experienced unhealthy communities <laughs> in their region outside of North America. And we brought them together to have discussions where we talked about things like, you know, what is, how does the community participation guidelines, how, how does it make you feel supported? What could it be doing more of? And then just general conversations that were fostered through their own experiences. Yeah. So the silos was really about the project work. So an example more specifically on, on that is like for Drupal had a diversity or maybe they still, they probably still do a diversity inclusion working group. And so in there they talk about, you know, how they're making their events more inclusive and, and I'm doing my metrics on how I'm making events more inclusive, or they're, and they're talking about bringing diversity into like specific leadership roles or tasks, and, the, and then I'm doing that somewhere else, and then I know that you know, there's another project doing it. Those are the types of silos that I think are like painful because we could be going so much faster, right? Diversity in open source is less diverse, as you I think, all know, than tech overall. So why is that? Like, that is because we're not working together enough. And I, I think, again, that's why I talk about and encourage people to be, in the chaos project, because I think that's a solution or a type of solution.
0: We also have the, I, I know a while ago you had started a mailing list and regular calls on diversity inclusion to bring together the the efforts across open source on that topic. And there is opensourcediversity.org, There's yeah. still a lot of that work is happening.
3: Yeah. That, that's true. So yeah, I, I did run some in the to bring people together from doing similar work. Yeah, we had a mailing list. And I, as you said, I ran these calls. And I think that was successful in that people were willing to be consumers in a way of this information. It was harder to get people to participate or to collaborate. And that is not a criticism, I think. What it speaks to is that a lot of people are doing diversity, inclusion, and equity on kind of the sides of their desks. The work of inclusion often falls on those people who it, the lack of impacts the most. And so I think there's like a meta problem perhaps around silos like maybe the silos are happening just because it's there's that's all that people are you know able to do in some cases, and it's so I found that it was great to bring people together. i the list was our mailing list was like one hundred and fifty from so many open source projects, organizations, foundations, like the, you know, universities, like people who are very interested in engaging, but more as consumers. And I think the open source diversity.org is, is doing great work and they're trying to foster that as well. And I know there's like a telegram group that's, that people join and there's some good conversations there. And you're making me just think out loud, apologies for how that might sound around, (laughs) how do we solve for that burnout, like how do we get people to work together and help people be successful collaborating when there is that burnout and it is that burden of work is falling on those most affected? I don't know the answer. But I, again, I think chaos has come the closest that I know in this particular regard. That's why I'm a fan. I
1: mean, it's really good to hear that we've actually gotten closer, but there's, there's always good and then there's better. So I guess now is a really great question to ask where is this working group? Where is chaos? going to move forward now, especially since diversity and inclusion, at least here in the States, is now a mainstay part of the news? What are we going to do? It's definitely a group question.
0: The Chaos Diversity and Inclusion Working Group, we're going to put a link in the show notes for anyone who does want to be involved. The Open diversity.org platform is also really great if you have any questions that are not metric related, just general diversity inclusion metrics. There's a great community that I, I see it all the time. Someone has a question, how do you do this? Where's a resource for whatever. And then everyone jumps in and tries to help. So it's a really great community around that. From me, where are we going with the chaos diversity inclusion working group? Where are we going next? Right now, we are working on the badging. That is one of the big efforts on getting metrics into practice. As of recording this, we are working on the next metric release. So there will be new metrics to be released at the beginning of August. And we will continue to do this work of how do we understand diversity and inclusion in open source That will always be our conversation. And then how do we bring this conversation into our communities, into the ecosystem and help others to have that conversation as well? So that is where we're going right now. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that.
3: So I was going to answer a question on sort of the place, this place in time, but I also, I was going to start with a question around. During the open source summit, which was just held recently, which I was unable to attend, was there greater attendance in topics that brought people in on inclusion and diversity? Because in the, in the past, I sometimes find it's the usual suspects. And I'm just wondering are we starting to see a change in that already, did anyone notice like there was more topics related to that or more less usual suspects in people carrying that were non-traditionally in those sessions?
0: So, From a speaker perspective, I don't actually have uh, insights to who was in the sessions because the platform didn't tell me who was in the audience. I just had a number and on the schedule where people could say, I want to attend this session, of course not everyone attends the session, so I actually have no idea who was in those sessions.
1: Okay. I definitely think it would be interesting to see those stats. And of course, we're not privy to it. We weren't a part of Sketch.com or the Linux Foundation, so we may not see the back end. So I hope they'll come up with a report. But I can say quite happily, this was actually my second summit, and it was the first one that was digital. So I wonder if the fact that this all-digital platform, now accessible as a result of the current state of the world, may have made it easier for people in disadvantaged situations to attend and therefore may have given us some new blood, so to speak.
2: Yeah, there's a whole trend in tech events where the 2020 iteration of an event had been all the people who went ahead and pitched a talk knowing they'd be able to get a travel budget and then I think we're really not going to see the change in the move to online until the 2021 version of those events. When from the day the CFP goes out, uh, the call for participation goes out, the potential participants will be aware that it's not going to be gated by who has the ability to travel to a specific location, often a very expensive location.
3: Yeah, that's super interesting. At, at Mozilla, we have our a, 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 every six months all hands, and we just had our first remote all hands. And we were able to invite basically twice as many people because also the, the cost, you know, and also visas. So a lot of times people can't get to locations because the, their visas are denied or their students, I think there's definitely an inclusion metric there. Write that down around, you know, how much that's changed and what can we track. There's a question right there is how much did COVID change participation inclusivity? I think I'm going off topic there, but I found that that was really interesting. Thank you. I think it's interesting.
1: I work for a events management company that does conferences primarily in biological sciences all over the world and all of their events naturally were canceled. And we just ran our first virtual event on vaccinology in the age of COVID. And the amount of attendees that we had from quote-unquote sanctioned countries, basically countries we can't offer scholarships to, was incredible.
3: That's amazing.
2: Yeah, there's nothing about open source that that technically indicates you have to get a visa to certain countries in order to be able to do it. but. In practice, so much of the informal conversation tends to take place in in-person events. So, Emma, is there a, a metric around some kind of uh, community decision-making in in open spaces that might be more inclusive than the kind of project decisions that might get made at a at an in-person event?
3: I think that's such a interesting call out Dawn that being able to attend an event often means you have more influence in the decision-making of a project. If I, and historically those will be, you know, people from privileged demographics, both working for people that or companies that can afford to let them travel or they're not in sanctioned countries or, you know, they have childcare or there's there's all those sorts of things that make means. And I, totally agree that conferences in person have been the place where those have been made. And that I think that, that making a statement like decision-making done in events has historically excluded a large number of people. And in future online events, will solve it this way. Something like that. It's more of a a statement that we need to tease out of there and then start measuring. So.
0: Yeah. we're, We're running close on, on time. I just wanted to, pick your brain as we are thinking about diversity and inclusion and in society and tech and open source. What what do you think we can go next or what we can do? I know there are several movements going on right now, especially in the U.S.
3: Yeah. So thanks for asking about that. I mean, I think with everything that's going on in the world, the, the Black Lives Matter movement has really brought to a forefront what how systemic racism plays a role in in education in policing in in mental health care and there's i've definitely been thinking about you know how this applies to open source and i i'll be quite honest that i also feel like that a lot of the work that i've personally done has excluded i could call it intentional but i think it's the systemic nature of things it excluded prioritizing the voices of people of color and and black people in our communities. So I think I look back and I realize I should have be been much more intentional. Uh, and I know the survey that I read in 2017, we didn't even include a question about race because we weren't sure how to ask that question. We're like, well, there's you know, there's different race and ethnicities all over the world. How could we possibly have a list? And I had a person who identified as being a black man in a open source community say, how could you leave that question out? Right? Like my experiences are formed by the fact that I'm a black man in open source, and my answer was. About I didn't know how to ask the question right. justly was not the right answer. We should have included that question. And so I think the the reason that I'm bringing that up is that, that I felt comfortable leaving out that question is is part of the the systemic racism that is open source. I'm trying to challenge myself and call myself up as part of of this, and I'm hoping that others in open source are doing the same because, yes, racism is systemic and open source structures are racist. (laughs) I think that's a statement that everyone should get comfortable with in open source if we're actually going to do something about it. And I know there's a lot of great discomfort uh, around that and that I'm working on it myself and I'm hoping others are as well. And I think the reason we need to say that open source structures are racist is, you know, Tim Creighton, who I follow, if you don't already follow, has like very... Rightly said, technology is not neutral. Like who is building technology with open source? Who holds the power? Who holds decisions? Hold the wealth and get the employment. And that if we are not prioritizing, listening to Black people in our communities, whether they're Black people in North America or they're in Africa, I mean, then then we are contributing to that that injustice. And I I feel like extremely motivated and. Um, to figure that out and I that might be that there's some dismantling to do in how open source works right like even the chaos project metrics like we're we're like this is how you know we how a project should be structured how an event should be structured but we should challenge ourselves to think about the fact that even in our research those voices might be largely not people of color <laughs> and so I think the challenge for us is to make sure that our metrics are not reinforcing those, those racist structures. Or that we just, we take our metrics, in, for example, around events or around projects and say, let's ask people, let's take a, you know, have a survey that says, you know, we want to hear about what you think is inclusive to the Black people in our communities and in our tech companies and prioritize listening to only them, <laughs> right? This, I think there's something interesting that the Chaos Project could do. I don't think anyone should do that. Again, just thinking about people's safety and privacy that maybe that's something i encourage the chaos project leaders to think about is how could we as a trusted project bring in those voices and then come back, get, you know, have those insights and go back to our metrics and say, does this still work? Is this still right? How should this be changed to ensure that we're not reinforcing those, those structures? So that's kind of my, my I, I get goosebumps when I talk about it because I just learned so much in the last couple of months by, by doing a lot of listing myself i like to do that in our communities. Yeah, so well said, so
1: beautifully and wonderfully said. And I think one thing really, really jumped out to me was this idea that the reason that question was left off the survey was because you weren't sure how to answer the question right. And it seems like sometimes when it comes to asking the right questions, you have to start by asking the question wrong.
3: Or asking it at all. But not asking it—that's that was a horrible signal about, you know, oh, oh, I guess we don't know how to ask the question, so we'll just we'll just not ask it all.
1: Absolutely, and it's like shying away from conversations about race uh, because you weren't entirely sure how to bring up a conversation about race. Exactly.
2: Yeah, and organizations will pay for experts in other fields. So if you have an SSL problem or a database problem, you'll you have the expectation that a consultant with expertise in that area can be brought in and paid to help you address that problem. But in in the area of diversity and inclusion, there are a lot of people who have done years of scholarship on it and developed significant expertise in it who are available and can be compensated. And we need to have the, the organizational expectation that there's going to be that item in the budget.
0: So thank you very much for this very, very insightful and deep conversation. At the end of our episodes, we like to have a section of Value adds or picks where each of us highlights something that has brought value into their life recently. This can be something open source related, metrics related, or it can be something completely unrelated. And I'll I'll start us off. One thing that brought a lot of value to my life was uh, we are currently fostering a child, and at 14 years old, they learned to ride a bike and yesterday was the first time that they were able to ride up and down the street in front of our house and that just made me so happy so that, that is my my value add for this week
3: wow that is that is a big one congratulations to that is amazing
0: yeah, yeah
3: that, is, that is thank you i'm going to be thinking about that today
0: so once you go next the floor is open
1: One of the things that diversity and inclusion causes, and I'm actually really happy because it came up this time around as well in the LGBTQ community, people have closeted identities. They haven't come out yet. They might still be questioning their identity or something along those lines. And oftentimes they need a little bit of help, but it's very difficult, especially from a metrics or analytics perspective, to look at that. So, one of the things that I constantly think about is sometimes it's worth throwing money in the dark so that you can find places to help the world that you never knew existed. And uh, I think that's one of my biggest picks or lessons living in America in the current state where it is. Sometimes it's worth throwing money in the dark.
0: Thank you. Don?
2: I just wanted to recommend a really interesting site called stophateforprofit.org. And this is an advertiser campaign to bring moderation practices on Facebook up to date. And I think that social media marketing and open source community management are looking at a lot of the same problems from different points of view and at different scales. So the Stop Hate for Profit, which is stophateforprofit.org campaign has arisen in response to one particular social media site that's gotten extremely uh, problematic and, and has become a controversial place to advertise. But some of the issues they're addressing and some of the the moderation practices they're recommending can be reflected on for trying to help keep open source communities from going uh, down the same direction.
0: Sounds uh, like a very important topic. Thanks, you. Thank you, Don. Emma, what brought value to your life recently?
3: I'm gonna be greedy and say two things, but I'll say them quickly so they take about the length of one thing. The first just on the in the topic of racism and social justice, I just wanted to recommend, and there'll be if you can include a link to um, Kim Creighton's course, Introduction to Being Anti-Racist. And if you don't have time to attend that, there's actually two links to a podcast called Seeing White, which I've been listening to, which has really informed me recently. On a like more therapeutic mental health note, I just want to say that. I've become a gardener during COVID. I started gardening more like the last couple of years, but I find, you know, especially as a mother, I'm managing like work and lots of emotions of, of people who are also dealing with things going on and being able to go out and, and water my cauliflower and every day see things get bigger and healthy. It's just, is a, a grounding that it adds value to me every day. So gardening, everyone. That's awesome. Do right. you mind if I ask what you're planting? I have lots of lettuces. One Earth Day a couple of years ago, I set a goal to not buy any lettuce one summer, which I sort of failed. But this year I've been picking lots of lettuce and my my daughters call it zero mile lettuce or I make them call them that maybe, I don't know. And uh, versus traveled lettuce. So I've been eating lots of of lettuce, but I also have cauliflowers and strawberries and corn and sunflowers. They all make me happy together. They're like an orchestra really.
0: (laughs) It is time to say thank you Thank you, Emma, for joining us today for this episode. Thank you, Venia and Don for serving as panelists today and asking really good questions. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us in this conversation. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this episode on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episodes, topics, or would you even like to come on as a guest, please email us at podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.
1: This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode with 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, their enterprise grade hardware, S3 compatible storage options, and next generation network Lino delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Lino
3: today by going to lino.com/chaos.